0: See you today. Are you looking for the love they took away? Everyone knows that you couldn't buy the pain. So you took your life in the fold The most ghoulish greetings to all of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers Podcast part of your day. Those tunes that just went through the old ears is, of course, courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey. And as always, I am your host, Tessa Morrow. Today we find ourselves in Jefferson County, Missouri, at a location that, for 168 years, housed some of the most dangerous men and women out there, Missouri State Penitentiary which opened back in 1836 and eventually shuts down in more recent of years, that being 2004. And at the time of its shutdown, it was the oldest continuously operated correctional facility west of the Mississippi River. As mentioned, a couple weeks ago, in the Eastern State Penitentiary episode, Missouri State Pen, along with Eastern State Pen and Alcatraz are the only three maximum security prisons that allow the public to come in for tours historically and ghosts. Speaking of Alcatraz, Missouri State Penitentiary had been around for about 98 years before Alcatraz became a federal penitentiary, so that's kind of neat. Before we dive into some of the inmates and their stories and the hauntings, here's a short timeline, if you will. Now, in 1842, Missouri State introduces female inmates into the penitentiary's population. And, in 1868, Housing Unit 4 is constructed. This would hold post-Civil War criminals. And guess what? The stone that was used to build Unit 4 was quarried right on the property and is built by the inmates. In 1905, Housing Unit 1 is built. This would house some of the female inmates. And in 1914, housing unit number three joins the party. This was the segregation area. And it is in the 1936 area where the penitentiary is at its highest peak, being home to 5,200 inmates, more than any other facility in the country. The following year, in 1937, the gas chamber is built And, like Housing Unit number 4, the execution chamber is constructed by none other than the inmates. Prior to the gas chamber, death rowers were executed via hanging. The gas chamber would welcome 40 doomed souls into its opening chambers. More on some of those executions later on. In 1967, Time Magazine dubs this penitentiary as the bloodiest 47 acres in America. Now, Missouri State Penn remains open to this very day for tours and investigations. I looked online because I was really interested, and here's what I found for those that are also interested. For a two-hour tour, it's $35. For a three-hour tour, it's $45. A five-hour overnight paranormal investigation runs $75, and an eight-hour overnight paranormal investigation is $100. These are not bad prices at all, in my opinion. You're getting to go to a historic location with so much history seeping through. And for several hours, that's pretty cool. I mean, I remember when I did a few hours at Waverly Hills and it was over $100. Nothing against Waverly. I absolutely love that location. You guys know that as I've done an episode on that place and I've mentioned it a few times and I will go back eventually, but $100 for eight hours, that is quite the absolute awesome deal. You can go to MissouriPenTours.com, and I believe they do the tours from March through November. During the 168 years of being a penitentiary, this location sure has had its fair share of riots, escapes, murders, suicides, and executions. On the 22nd day of September in 1954, a huge riot breaks out. This was well planned. Two inmates claim that they are sick. (coughs) Well, this gains the guards' attention. You guys, this is exactly what they had been planning and what they were hoping for. Distract the guards. Once the guards walk into that trap, they are ambushed. They are held hostage and their keys are taken away from them. The two sick inmates then begin to release fellow inmates from their cells. And as news breaks about the riot, several come to assist. From the Highway Patrol to the Missouri National Guard and several fellow police departments. And it didn't take long at all for this to become a serious shit show. Soon, several inmates, I mean, I believe it was around 2,500, no joke, We're roaming around freely, kind of like a scary movie, like no way that could really happen. By the time the penitentiary is surrounded by authorities, at least four of the buildings are in flames. One of those buildings was the license plate factory, and I saw a picture of it burned out, and it was huge. I mean, duh, it's a factory, but it was gigantic, and that was completely destroyed by fire. Enough was enough. Early the following morning, armed officers are on the rooftops and entering the area where several hundred rioters continue to wreak havoc. Over the loudspeaker, an announcement, more like a last chance to save your ass, a warning, if you will, comes on saying something to the effect of, you better enter the closest cell you are next to and do it quietly or you will be shot. We will not hesitate. It's your choice, but this is ending right now. One inmate stupidly calls their bluff, and he is shot dead. Well, this is kind of a wake-up call. Okay, these guys mean business. They're not messing around. And quite the eye-opener, they make the decision to go to the cells as instructed. A smart choice. The aftermath after the riot is that 50 inmates are injured. Four inmates are killed, one which was serving time in solitary confinement and was tortured and murdered by his fellow inmates, one attempts suicide, and four guards are severely injured. Five million dollars worth of damages and a decent amount of buildings while they're burned down. Riots and escapes are often seen at penitentiaries. They kind of just go hand in hand. Now, we are leaving the riots and heading to escapes. Now, before his 1951 execution, Claude McGee manages to escape one Halloween night in 1945, and while free, he manages to kidnap an insurance agent. Okay, you would think, okay. Dude escapes from a penitentiary, common sense that he would probably lock down somewhere, act like a saint, out of sight, out of mind, just wanting to be free and hide out. No, this asshole kidnaps a person. Claude will make another appearance later on when I talk about executions, but right now this is all about the escapes, so moving on to the next. James Earl Ray. Yeah, that guy and an accomplice. They hold up and rob a Kroger store back in 1959. He is sentenced to Missouri State Penitentiary for 20 years. He was no newbie when it came to serving time. He had spent several years at the United States' finest pens, including Kansas' very own Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary. While serving time at Missouri, he repeatedly tries to escape. Finally, in 1967, he is successful, unfortunately, when he one day goes to his bakery job. His fellow inmates help hide Ray into a large box. This box was often used for loaves of bread. A delivery truck pulls up, begins to load up the large boxes, one of them containing James Earl Ray, and he successfully leaves prison grounds. I still have a dream. James makes bloody history on April 4th, 1968, almost a year after his escape via bread truck, when he murders Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He believed he would be seen as a hero, but instead he's seen as a villain. Hmm. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States, was assassinated in Memphis tonight. A sniper's bullet cut down Dr. King as he stood on a hotel balcony. Dude, you murdered someone. Straight up took someone's life. What did you think was going to happen? You thought you were going to be this big guy, this exciting dude who everyone loved? He is quickly apprehended. He is slapped with a guilty verdict for first-degree murder and a sentence to 99 years. He is sent to Tennessee, the state where the murder took place, where the escape artist attempts several times to escape. Thankfully, they're all failures. To this day, in the eyes of the Missouri Department of Corrections, James Earl Ray remains on escape status. In October 22, 2003, my birthday, an inmate named Toby Files is brutally murdered by two of his own fellow inmates, Christopher Sims and Shannon Phillips. They managed to hide away in a room where they remain for four days. I mean, is it really freedom if you're still in the penitentiary? Their main plan was to stay here in this room until the state pen closed for good. Now that's a long wait. No such luck for these inmates, and no shocker there. How did they think they would actually be successful with this hiding out when they didn't close down the facility until October 2004? If their plan did work, that means that they would be locked up in that room for a year. What a crazy plot those rascally boys hatched. Many men and women... Missouri State Penitentiary home. Notable inmates include Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. He was a sadistic man who took pleasure in kidnapping, torturing, raping, and eventually, yes, murdering his victims. In 1984, and lasting up until 1987, Kansas City, Missouri was in a state of terror when a serial killer known as the Kansas City Butcher plagued the area, with several killings. Charles Floyd, better known as Pretty Boy Floyd, spent time here at the Penn in late 1925 for a robbery. He was a notorious bank robber and believed to be one of the people behind the 1933 Kansas City Massacre. October 19th, Floyd and Adam Ricchetti are observed by passerby to be in their nice suits and laying on the side of the road. Well, this concerned the traveler's quite a bit, and they get back into town where they share what they saw with the police chief, John Fultz. Law enforcement arrive, and Ricchetti, he flees into the forest, while Charles Floyd begins shooting. None of the authorities die in this case, thankfully, but they do suffer injuries. Floyd eventually follows Ricchetti's actions and runs into the forest. Ricchetti is eventually apprehended, but pretty boy Floyd gets away. Or does he? It is a few days after the incident, October 22nd, again, my birthday. He is at a local pool hall when suddenly someone sees him, recognizes him, and soon a chase occurs. He gets into a car, but he quickly comes back out with a forty-five caliber pistol. This will be a fatal mistake on Pretty Boy Floyd's part, and he meets his maker. He died in Ohio, but is transferred to Oklahoma for burial. Publicly displayed for all to see if they wished, his funeral, believe it or not, remains the largest funeral to be conducted in Oklahoma history. Anywhere from 20,000 people to 40,000 came to pay their respects. Or maybe just to make sure he was dead. Who knows? Adam Ricchetti. You'll hear more about him later on as he does get executed in Missouri State Penitentiary. But I want to talk a little bit about the Kansas City Massacre. It was masterminded by Vernon Miller. He was a bank robber, a bootlegger, a hitman. Oh yeah, and at one time, this hitman used to be the sheriff for Huron, South Dakota. So what made this one-time lawman and respectable citizen turn and change extreme paths? It's believed that he recruits the help of Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Ricchetti to help with the massacre. Four police officers would be murdered by the time this massacre ended. Police were apprehending a man named Frank Nash, often referred to as Jelly, when they are suddenly ambushed. The victims are Kansas City Detectives William Grooms and Frank Hermanson, Special Agent Ray Caffrey, and Oklahoma Police Chief Otto Reed. Jelly, the man they were bringing in, who Miller desperately was trying to help escape, was also killed during this ambush. As the murderers get closer to the car to perhaps admire their handiwork, who knows, a surviving policeman shoots at them. They, of course, do what they do best besides shooting at people, and they flee the area. Well, months later, mastermind Mernon Miller, former Sheriff Miller, is found in Detroit, And let's just say justice was served. Karma's a bitch, especially when you're murdering people. Well, this scumbag himself was found murdered. He was beaten and strangled. As my little nephew would say, karma. Ricchetti's fingerprint is found at Miller's place where he often hid away from authorities Alvin Karpis, a bad dude himself, who was a bank robber, among other things, like being a leader of the Barker and Karpis gang, shared that pretty boy Floyd admitted to him his involvement in the massacre that claimed five lives. Both men deny any part in the murders. What's interesting is the man who was believed to be Floyd was actually shot during the shootout and had an injury on his shoulder during the time massacre took place. Well, when checked, Floyd did not bear any type of injury of this sort, something that you just cannot simply cover up. You could try, but evidence of a gunshot wound would definitely be there. Pretty Boy Floyd admits to being responsible for several crimes in his day. He's the first to admit that he is no saint. I mean, come on, there's no denying it. Once John Dillinger is wiped out, Floyd takes his place as public enemy number one, but he always refused that he took part of the Kansas City Massacre. Same with Adam Ricchetti. In fact, police in Kansas City receive a postcard, which was dated June thirtieth, 1933, and it read this, quote, Dear Sirs, I, Charles Floyd, want it made known that I did not participate in the massacre of officers at Kansas City. Charles Floyd. And on a side note about Pretty Boy Floyd, about five years before his death, he is arrested in May 1929 and suspicion of highway robbery, but he is released the very following day. Two days later, he is found in my hometown of Pueblo, Colorado, a place that I spend a lot of time in, and actually I'll be there in a couple weeks. And he's charged with vagrancy and is fined $50 and sentenced to 60 days in jail. I'm unsure if he spent that time in Pueblo or elsewhere, but it always kind of gets my attention when I'm doing research for an episode and a place that I am from or used to live pops up and makes an appearance. It leaves me intrigued. But it is interesting. I, I have to think that maybe Alvin Karpis had something to do with it himself. It's so easy to point the finger at somebody who has a really bad reputation, who's been known to do a lot of shitty stuff, and to use somebody like Pretty Boy Floyd as a scapegoat when Alvin Karpis himself was a very dangerous individual. And there was no evidence linking Ricchetti or Floyd to this horrific massacre. And of course, Sheriff Miller is long dead, murdered, so he is no help. Another inmate who called the penitentiary home was Charles Sonny Liston. He was serving time for armed robbery. And it is here in Missouri State Penitentiary that he learns to box and he realizes he's really damn good at it. And eventually he is paroled three years into his sentence and will later become a world heavyweight champion nine years after his release. He had a total of 54 fights and he only lost four of them. Life is good. He's living the dream. People love him. Well, that all comes to a halt when in 1971, his beloved wife comes home from a two-week trip only to find her husband's body in their bedroom. The cause of death is believed by some to be a heroin overdose. However, the body was too decomposed as he had been deceased for quite some time, possibly the two weeks she was gone, before being discovered. So the tests, unfortunately, were inconclusive. Listed in the report is lung congestion and heart failure. In the eyes of people that really knew him, his death was an extremely suspicious one. Those closest to him claimed that he was deathly afraid of needles, so he would never have used heroin. But authorities did find both heroin and marijuana at the scene, so I don't know. Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty. They kidnap a young boy named Bobby Greenlease. They definitely had this planned out. They went to his school where Bonnie talked a nun into releasing the young boy into their custody. She claimed that she was a family member of the child and that he had to leave with her immediately as his beloved mother had just suffered a heart attack and they had to take him to the hospital so he could be with his mother. Concerned after the boy leaves, the nun tells a fellow nun about the heart attack, And a call is actually made to check on the mother's condition. You guys, there was no heart attack. This is every parent's worst nightmare. Fear strikes immediately and the FBI is instantly contacted. Carl and Bonnie, along with the child, they cross state lines. They leave Missouri and they enter into Kansas. They end the child's young life by shooting him. He was only six years old at the time of his murder. They go back to Missouri, where they bury young Bobby's body at Bonnie's home in the backyard. The murderous couple, they're not done yet when it came to terrorizing this family. After the boy is murdered and buried, they begin to taunt Bobby Greenlee Sr. by sending letters demanding a ransom. They request that the wealthy man and father send $600,000. You guys, this is back in 1953. Today, that's $6,782,831. Greenlease, he wants nothing more than to have his precious son back. He doesn't care about the money. His son's life is so much more precious to him, so he does everything that these horrible people ask for. He pays the ransom. He's keeping the authorities at bay as requested. Getting Bobby back is his sole mission. That's all that mattered. He didn't know that, more than likely, his son Junior was murdered just hours after his kidnapping. And at the time, this was the largest ransom ever paid in American history. That is until 20 years later when Virginia Piper is kidnapped. The difference? The kidnappers were in it for the money, not the violence. When they got that money, they called a random stranger, telling them the location of the missing woman's whereabouts. She is thankfully found safe and alive, yet I'm sure rather rattled and scared, and she is eventually reunited with her family. Bobby Jr. did not get that chance to see his family ever again. You'll hear more about these monsters when I talk about executions. John Johnson, he is better known as Firebug. He was considered to be one of the most notorious men to call Missouri State Penitentiary home. He attempts to escape several times. One time he even sets the prison on fire. This inferno causes $500,000 in damages, and it kills several of his fellow inmates. He is convicted of arson and handed 12 additional years to his already lengthy sentence. He is then put in solitary confinement in the dungeon where he remains for several years. The St. Louis Dispatch wrote an article on him December 16, 1900. John B. Hunt, known only as Firebug Johnson, served a longer continuous term than any other man ever confined in the Missouri penitentiary. He spent more time in solitary confinement than any other American prisoner on record. So when a release date can be seen, Firebug, he decides to write a letter to the governor, dated December 2nd, 1900, and it reads this. Mrs. L. V. Stevens, dear madam, I would very much like to see you. I think they are going to give me my liberty, and the mere thought of it sets me wild. I have not slept any for three nights. While my heart has been beating like a steam engine and fluctuating between hope and fear, liberty, the buoy of hope, the stay of life, the ambrosial nectar upon which the soul of even a poor prisoner feeds, is soon to be mine once more, and I want to see you to ask you to forgive me, and to send me on my way with your blessing. For once, in my despair and madness, I blamed you, along with the governor, for not getting my liberty. My love for liberty, I think, made me unreasonable. Hope led me to expect more, perhaps, than I deserved. Although the suffering I have passed through has been terrible, I feel that I am bigger for it. I feel kindlier for my fellow man as well as more enlightened, and when I leave here, it will be with a mind devoted to the principles of right, and with a fixed determination to do right, unquote. Upon Johnson's release, he writes a book titled Buried Alive for 18 Years in the Missouri Penitentiary, and it's no joke, he was in the dungeon from February 26, 1883, up until July first, 1900, a little shy of 17 and a half years. And I feel I have to mention this again, that he has spent more time in solitary confinement than any other American prisoner to date. And it all happened right here at Missouri State Penitentiary. Another inmate who called this place home for a while was Blanche Barrow, well known for being part of the Bonnie and Clyde gang. She was sentenced to 10 years here for assault with the intention to kill. However, she becomes a model prisoner, and she's actually released in 1939. Missouri State Penitentiary was home to several executions here. For men and women, they took their last breath. The year 1938 was plagued with executions here at the penitentiary. John Brown, he holds up a tavern, and while doing so, murders a Missouri patrolman, William Kavanaugh. Brown is executed alongside William Wright, who robbed a pharmacy and killed a doctor and druggist while in the process. The date of death for these two men, March 3rd, 1938. March 5th, 1938, just two days, mind you, after the double execution of Brown and Wright, a man named Raymond Boyer is executed. The crime he died for was murdering a man named W. Dell and then stealing his clothing and car. July 15th, 1938, a man named Johnny Jones holds a couple captive. He ties the husband to a bedpost and then proceeds to brutally assault the wife. He is executed for this. And I didn't see anywhere that these people died, so fingers crossed and hopefully they survived this. On October 7th of 1938, Adam Ricchetti is executed for his part, or what's to believe to be his part, in the Kansas City Massacre. Pretty Boy Floyd always denied any involvement, and Adam Ricchetti was right there with him. Spokane Daily Chronicle reported this on June 13, 1935. The title screams, Death Demanded for Adam Ricchetti. The state today demanded the death penalty for Adam Ricchetti, charged with murder in connection with Union Station slayings of four officers and Frank Nash, their prisoner, here on June 17, 1933. Michael O. Hearn Deputy County Prosecutor made the plea in an opening statement after Ricchetti attorneys lost in a second attempt to quash the indictment. Still, in October of 1938, it is the 28th day one Grand Phil Allen is executed for murdering Howard Preston during a botched robbery. Byron King, he is executed November 4th, 1938. The crime that got him a date with the executioner, you may ask, he decided that it's okay to rob a St. Louis a taxi driver, a man named George Spear. And in a result of this burglary, he gets $3.25. He then proceeds to brutally murder George. Before the taxi driver can breathe his last breath, he was able to identify King as the man who had robbed and attacked him. Moments before his execution, he is seen smoking cigarettes and talking it up with the prison staff. Again, $3.25 this man was murdered for. It's just unbelievable. And we finally leave deadly 1938 and enter into 1939. February 15th, John Williamson is executed for murder. That of a farmer named George Williams. The argument, which turned into murder, was over two hogs. And September 20th, 1940, Robert West is executed for the murder of his childhood sweetheart. What seemed to be a regular day for her, she was just sitting in a car, minding her own business at a relative's house when tragedy strikes. On a side note, Robert actually helped quarry the stone that was used to build the Missouri State Penitentiary Gas Chamber. He died in that very chamber his hands helped build, alongside with murderer and death-rower Chester Jackson. He, too, murdered the woman he supposedly cared deeply for. An eye for an eye, fellas. An eye for an eye. On January 3rd, 1941, Wilburn Johnson is executed for the murder of four people. A grandmother, her two grandchildren, ages 13 and 15, and an unidentified person. What caused this man to do such a heinous thing? Five dollars, you guys. He murdered four people for five dollars. Like, again, are you kidding me? June 16th, 1944. Alan Lambis gets a date with the executioner for the murder of a teenage girl. He used a pitchfork after he tried picking her up and she declined his advances. On March 25th, 1945, Leo Lyles is executed for a robbery that turned deadly. He attempted to steal a farmer's truck, and while in the process of doing so, the farmer, Martin Twelman, is murdered. Leo's execution is the very first in Missouri's history that a woman is allowed to witness an execution. And later that year, on November 16th, William Talbert, Leo's accomplice, is also executed for the crime. August 16th, 1946, Fred Ellis and Jesse Sanford are executed for their roles in the robbery and brutal murder of Mary Santo. They proceeded to beat her and burn her to death. They got away with $45, but ultimately not their lives, thank God. January 9th, 1947, Van Lee Ramsey is executed for the murder of Lena Davidson. She was only 19 years old at the time of her death, and she was just working as a waitress trying to get by when he decided to rob her. It went very bad, and he ended up slitting her throat. September 26, 1947. Floyd Cochran is executed for the rape and murder of Mary Lou Jenkins. He strangled her with a lamp cord. He also murdered his very own wife. He requests for his last meal, a T-bone steak with fries, corn, gravy, bread, cake, and coffee. Once he receives this meal fit for a king, he refuses to eat it. Not a single damn bite. Like he was worthy of eating any of that anyways. November 4th, 1949. Ernest Scott, he is executed for the murders of Circuit Judge Charles Jackson and his wife. He believed that the two were having an affair. And I couldn't find anything to prove that this was actually true. But either way, dude, you don't murder, you divorce. That's what I always yell when I'm watching my true crime. Ah, you idiot. Just divorce the person. You don't need to murder. So December 2nd, 1949, George Bell is executed for the gunfight at an apartment that he had with police. And by the end of the gunfight, a bystander along with four police officers would die. January 5, 1951, Claude McGee is executed. Claude and John Manor, they entered Missouri State Penitentiary together for the 1937 murder of a Missouri man. Halloween day of 1945, him and another inmate managed to escape and they kidnap a Jefferson County, Missouri insurance agent. Later on, Claude would murder John Manor. Remember, these men are doing time for killing the same person they partners in crime, and it is said that he killed his partner over a $20 debt. He owed the $20, too, mind you. It wasn't the other way around, where it's like, I'm going to kill you because you owe me money. He is tried and sentenced to death for this murder, making him the only Missouri State Penitentiary inmate to be executed for a crime that was committed while doing time in prison. You see, he didn't get death for the first murder. Well, he did, but then he didn't. January 5th, 1951, a newspaper reports this, quote, Convict executed for prison killing was one sentenced to be hanged for another murder. Claude McGee, Mississippi County convict, once sentenced to be hanged for the murder which sent him to the state penitentiary in 1937, was executed here early today in the prison lethal gas chamber for killing a fellow convict in 1948. McGee killed John Manner, 47 years of Cape Girardeau, with a hammer in the prison yard January 10, 1948, after a quarrel over a $20 debt owed by McGee to Manor. Manner and McGee were serving life sentences for the murder of W.T. Carleton in an attempted robbery of Carleton's home in Scott County in 1935. McGee got the life sentence at a second trial after appeal from the hanging sentence. McGee, 38, whose turbulent prison record caused prison officials to take extra precautions to prevent any disturbance, went to his death quietly. When McGee was led from a death house cell to the gas chamber, wearing only black shorts and a blindfold, he asked, handkerchief. Warden Ralph N. Edison said McGee explained he wanted to wipe off the seat of the metal chair in the gas chamber so he would not get his shorts dirty. Prison physicians observing through a glass window in the gas chamber said he apparently was dead six minutes after the cyanide gas was released. While a Cole County jury was liberating his murder case here, McGee escaped from prison guards in the courtroom. What was captured in the courthouse yard after several shots were fired at him by the officers. The sentence was upheld by the Supreme Court. He had escaped from jail twice while awaiting trial for the murder of Carlton and had escaped from the penitentiary in 1945. December 18, 1952, Bonnie Hetty and Carl Austin Hall, the evil sadistic couple that kidnapped and murdered a young child, are executed side-by-side in Missouri State Penitentiary's gas chamber. Bonnie is the third woman ever to be executed by the United States Federal Authorities. As of 2021, the number is four women. The very first is the 1865 execution of Mary Surratt for her involvement with Lincoln's assassination. I talked a little bit about her in the Curse of Ford's theater episode. The second is Ethel Rosenberg. She was convicted of being a Soviet spy and was executed alongside her husband. Well, he died after the very first shock. She had three shocks and was found to still have a heartbeat. Ethel She did not go easily into the night, my friends. It took two additional shocks. She is executed a few months prior to Bonnie and Carl's double execution. The most recent was Lisa Montgomery. Her execution was in January of 2021. Lisa, she was a sick and demented and unstable woman. She had four children of her own, but for reasons unknown, she began to fake several pregnancies. I don't know if it was to keep the guy with her. If she was that desperate or what? Well, the final time she fakes a pregnancy, she goes too far. And I mean it. Way, way, way too far. And she actually cuts the baby out of a pregnant woman. I remember reading this when it happened and watching several documentaries about it. And it just horrified me. I am so glad to hear that she finally got the reckoning and justice that she deserved. Jumping back to the double execution of Bonnie and Carl, It took the jury one hour and eight minutes to come up with a guilty verdict and recommending death. They were executed December 18th, 1952, just 11 weeks between their senseless crime and the execution date. Justice came swiftly and smoothly, my friends, not like today where murderers live on death row for decades upon decades, and often just dying of natural deaths. August 1st, 1955, Doc Booker, he is executed. One fateful day, Doc and his friend Earl Harrison get into a very heated argument regarding which one of them is the best baseball pitcher. You know, instead of just going out and proving each other wrong out on the field. By the end of the fight, Harrison is dead. Booker's execution is the first since the 1954 riot. Obviously, because of the riot, staff was extremely nervous. They didn't know what to expect with the execution. But everything went okay, thankfully. Ronald Lee Wolfe spent time in Atlanta, Georgia at the federal prison. He is released and three days later he finds himself in Missouri. He lures an eight-year-old girl away from a church picnic and he proceeds to rape her brutally and I must repeat this three days the dude was not even a free man for an entire week not even half a week before he felt the need to do something so heinous so despicable so disgusting he is executed thankfully this child rapist is executed on May 8th 1964 were your three days of freedom worth it my man January 26, 1965, Lloyd Anderson is executed for a drugstore robbery, which turned into a murder when he takes the life of someone in the store. Anderson is the last lethal gas execution in Missouri. January 6, 1989, George Mercer, also known as Tiny, is executed for the 1978 rape and murder of Karen Keaton. Prior to the murder, he had already raped a 17 year old girl. He is the first person to be executed in the state of Missouri since 1965, that being Lloyd Leo Anderson. He died in the gas chamber but was given the lethal injection. His execution started at 12.03 a.m. He loses consciousness a couple minutes later at 12.05, and he is pronounced dead four minutes later at 12.09 a.m. From start to finish, 12.03 to 12.09, I'm sure the rape and murder that Karen Keaton endured was much longer than just a handful of minutes. In my opinion, George Tiny Mercer, he got off easy. While Missouri State Penitentiary definitely was home to several executions, many others met their end here in different ways. Let's take serial killer Charles Ray Hatcher. His dad was a bootlegger and a severely violent alcoholic. And at school, he was really void to the utmost. And when he is around six, maybe seven years old, his brother is actually killed when a kite he is flying hits a power line and he's electrocuted. Hatcher, he was no saint. He has done many things that would make one cringe. June 26, 1959, Hatcher attempts to abduct a 16-year-old boy named Stephen Pelham. Thankfully, Pelham gets away and reports the would-be abductor, and he is stopped in a stolen car, and he's arrested. Hatcher is sentenced to five years in Missouri State Penitentiary for the attempted abduction. When he gets to the pen, He begins to run his mouth, saying he is the most notorious criminal in Northwest Missouri since the infamous Jesse James. In 1961, an inmate named Jerry Tharrington is found raped and stabbed to death on the floor of the prison kitchen loading dock. Jerry is stabbed several times in the back. Hatcher, he was responsible for this heinous crime. Well, he does spend time in solitary confinement, believe it or not, his sentence is reduced. And he's released. Like, um, why? He's released August 24th, 1963. Well, this is when he begins his killing spree. He gets a second chance at life? You'd think he would be a saint, right? No. He goes on this heinous, horrific killing spree. He will take at least 16 people's lives. Fast forward to July 29, 1982, an 11-year-old girl named Michelle is reported missing from St. Joseph. The following day, her uncle finds her nude body on the bank of the Missouri River. She was badly beaten and strangled to death. Hatcher is apprehended, and while he is awaiting trial, he confesses to killing 15 other people. And he also takes the blame for Michelle's death as well. He is given a life imprisonment term with no parole for at least 50 years. He finds himself again at Missouri State Penitentiary. Four days later, he is found dead hanging in his cell. In my opinion, he should have never been released the first time. Sixteen people, including an 11-year-old little girl, would still be alive today. Robert Earl O'Neill. He was a white supremacist who murdered a fellow inmate named Arthur Dade. He is later executed for this crime, but it was after Missouri State Penitentiary shutdown, so his execution actually took place at the Potassi Correctional Center. Another inmate on inmate murder occurred when John McBroom was killed by his fellow inmates. He was attacked with a broken pair of scissors. He was believed to be an informant for the Penn Guards. He was stabbed several times within the head and his eyes. With all the murders, suicides, riots gone wrong and escapes, executions and what have you, it's a safe bet to say that Missouri State Penitentiary is extremely active in the paranormal department. Lights, they'll flicker as if growing a mind of their own. Windows and doors open and closed by unseen forces. Many employees and guests alike have heard disembodied footsteps coming from areas where no one is close to. Some have smelled the phantom smell of cigarettes in areas that do not allow smoking, and people have heard the distinct sounds of jail cell doors opening in vacant areas. (laughs) Laughter, whispering, and wild cries have been heard here many a time. People will at random times experience cold spots. And it said that this is a reaction one feels here at the penitentiary when a spirit who supposedly died from hypothermia long ago is around. And I was really curious about this, and I looked around, and when I started looking and searching for an inmate who died of hypothermia at the penitentiary, I saw several articles about a man who died from hypothermia, and he was an inmate. But it wasn't at the penitentiary, but another prison in Missouri, and it happened after the penitentiary had closed down. It happened last year, believe it or not. Maybe a prisoner died from hypothermia at the Missouri State Penitentiary, but I guess I just kind of got railroaded with the most recent of deaths. John McBroom, the inmate who was brutally murdered, getting stabbed in the eyes, is believed to be one of the resident spirits here. His apparition is seen wandering throughout the area. A tall tell that it's McBroom? Well, his eyes are bleeding. Another past inmate has been seen here in full prisoner garb, and I'm unsure of this man's identity. Two locations that are extremely active here at the Penn is Solitary Confinement, also known as A-Hall, and the Execution Chamber. Bonnie, Hetty, and Carl Austin, the people who brutally murdered Bobby Jr., well, they are believed to haunt the chamber. They are also believed to spend time haunting cell number 14. People have caught EVP evidence here before, believed to be from Bonnie and Carl, often getting the words love and kill. Meanwhile, A-Hall has major stuff happening there. Remember, this is where Johnson spent close to 18 years serving solitary confinement. Folks have claimed to feel unseen hands touching them. Phantom smells of raunchy body odor. People have caught disembodied voices and whispering on recorders and phones. And you know if somebody comes right behind you, like very close, like they don't know space, and they start to breathe on you, and you feel that hot breath on your skin? Yeah, I know. It's gross. But many have experienced just that here in the dungeon. An apparition of a man, possibly Firebug Johnson himself, has been seen here. Wow, just in solitary confinement, also known as the dungeon alone, you're getting phantom smells, as rancid as they may be, unexplainable sounds and voices, EVPs, physically getting touched. A lot going on there, my friends, for sure. In haunted places, I found a couple people who shared some stuff regarding the old penitentiary. One woman shared that back in the 90s, she was actually part of the nursing staff. She would work nights, and it was while doing pharmacy work that she would start to hear rattle of the chain type of sounds. Doors would kind of close on their own. And she would even hear voices, voices that she could not debunk or explain. She would search the area. And I mean, you know, if there's an inmate out or something, she had to know about that and be able to get help right away. But upon her searches, she never would find a single thing out of the ordinary, certainly nothing to explain why she was hearing all of these random sounds. And it would have been near impossible, though, for an inmate to be around, a live one anyways, as she explains, quote, you had to go through three main gates on all open sides to get to me, so no one could just get there without someone knowing, unquote. She shared that she had worked there for about two years and that this would happen several times to her. This one person shared that they had been on several ghost tours throughout the years. They even got EVPs of not only this person's name, but their daughter's name as well. And I've had this happen to me many a times. It's definitely a neat feeling hearing your name come from the lips of a ghost. In A-Hall, mentioned just moments ago, they experienced something interesting her daughter's bra pops all on its own. Um, as a frequent bra user, I can say this is not natural. They also saw a shadow person there as well. And while visiting death row, this person felt cold air being blown into their ears. Not once, my friends, but twice. While they were at an event where Nick Groff was, the daughter's leg is grabbed by unseen forces. She lets it be known, and Nick actually asks the spirits, Hey, were you responsible for touching this young lady's leg? And they get a recording back of a man replying yes. They then get an EVP, very loud and clear, saying for them to fuck off. Missouri State Penitentiary is definitely on my list of places to go to. I just, in general, love going to these types of locations and check them out. The history alone is phenomenal, and the haunting vibes is just a bonus. This week's special city shoutouts go to Lamar's, Iowa, Maranchi, India, Rosaryville, Maryland, Pelican Rapids, Minnesota, and Aztec, New Mexico. Thank you, everybody. As always, it is extremely appreciated. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They are all pretty damn phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet. Well, head on over to any of those awesome podcast platforms such as Apple Core Media Library, TuneIn Radio, Downcast, Google Chrome, Podcast Addict. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. Do you have a spooky encounter, experience, or story of your own to share? Perhaps you haven't heard your city town, village, state, or country on the podcast and you have a really neat local location you want to be featured. Perhaps you want to be a future voiceover. Please head on over to Paranormal Prowler's podcast Facebook page and reach out to me or you can always email me at paraprowl at gmail.com. Thanks everyone and I will see you next week.